It was strange since the cross is certainly a central image in the Christian faith. And in our building, it just wasn't there. And when I thought about all the locations that our church has met in, there's never been a cross in any of those buildings. Uh, We started in a strip club, so there was definitely no crosses in there. (laughs) Plenty of poles, no crosses. And then we moved to the movie theater, which of course didn't have a cross unless it was on a display for a horror film. Um, And then the Peachtree Road, I've already talked about that. We did have one when we were downtown in the terminus space. It was a portable cross. It weighed hundreds of pounds. It had wheels on it. And we only used it for like um, Ash Wednesday services and Good Friday services. We would roll it down Marietta Street uh, for those. But otherwise, it was pretty much a workers' comp situation with that thing. (laughs) And even this building, which is clearly a church building, did not have a cross when we moved in. And it even has a steeple. If there's going to be a cross, it's going to be on the steeple where you would usually find it. And it's weird, I know, not least because crosses are kind of everywhere in our culture. They're in art. People have them as tattoos. You ever look at somebody with a cross tattoo and go, really? You? (laughs) But don't laugh too much. It may be the point. It's on jewelry, it is jewelry, or as we say down here, jury. Anyone? No one? Price check at the jury counter? Listen for it, you'll hear it. You gotta go to certain stores though, certain establishments. Uh, When I was a kid, uh, I noticed that like Ozzy Osbourne wore a cross. And again, I was like, does that like deflate the meaning of the cross or maybe it elevates it, I don't know. It's not hard to find the image of the cross in our world except apparently in any building that we've ever met in as a church. And it is strange because, again, the cross is like the central image for the Christian faith. When we think about Jesus, when we think about Christianity, the cross is what usually comes to mind. There's no image of the empty tomb, but there is this image, this icon, this symbol of Christ's death. It's the central thing. But this was not always the case, however. Now, you know this. It doesn't take a genius to uh, realize that the cross and everything that it stood for was not like an appealing image to anyone, even in the ancient world. The cross was a means of public execution and therefore an image of public shame and defeat, an embarrassing one at that. And the ancient church basically stayed away from this symbol for centuries, You wouldn't walk into a first or second or even third century church and hear the greeter girl say, hey, you should see the new cross we just got. We just hung it above the stage. What do you think? That would never happen because crucifixion was not a celebrated experience. It's been domesticated for us. And even our art is missing some of the horror But it was not at the moment, at that time, a celebrated experience for the earliest Christians. It was a deeply, deeply troubling event. And also, at the crucifixion of Jesus, no one in power took the time to write down for the disciples the meaning of their teacher's crucifixion. That didn't happen. And so those early and ancient Christian communities, all the way up until today, have wrestled with what it meant. What does the crucifixion mean? Why did it happen? What does it mean for us? Does it mean anything at all? 
Because crucifixion at that time was for criminals. People of low standing were often crucified. Almost never used on Roman citizens. Jesus is, he dies within a very particular method, often reserved for those who carried no status, who were criminals, rebellious people, and so on. And the Roman way often linked social status with legal privilege. Having the punishment fit, not so much the crime, but the status of the accused. You can see this in Luke's retelling, as we just heard Kendra read, where Luke says, and the people stood by watching, and the leaders scoffed, saying, well, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Messiah of God, his chosen one. This indictment on, like, well, can't you do that? It says just after that that the soldiers mocked him. The implication here is that Jesus, even if he uh, were truly a king, and if he really carried the power of an influential leader of people, then he would certainly have the social and political standing to have avoided this. Even when you read the trials of Jesus closely, there's so many exit ramps, and he doesn't take them. It seems maybe silly to us on the surface, but even in our own justice system, it is the poor and those without networks or social agency that often end up caught in what feels like this never-ending cycle of struggle. While we joke or lament how the rich and the famous and the influential often find a way out. Amen? You don't want to say amen, I know. And Jesus hung there on the cross, and as he does so, the message was clear that this man is of no significance. And if you thought that he was, well, we have handled that for you. And even the piece of board with the words, the king of the Jews that was hung above his head, was an insult, a mock. It was not a title of respect for him. The actual king of the Jews in the eyes of the system, was still Herod, the king of Judea, the king of the Jews. And so even the the display, the the nameplate, is a mock. In the first century, Quintilian wrote, when we crucify criminals, the most frequent roads are chosen where the greatest number of people can look and be seized by fear. For every punishment has less to do with the offender than with the example. It's an example. It's a display of who holds the power. Jesus' death on the cross sent a message, a message of his insignificance in the eyes of the system, but also the message that if Jesus were in fact a king, it was a kingship that didn't look or act like the power systems of the world in which he lived. This king was by all accounts a loser. Which makes sense of why Paul says these words in his letter to the Corinthians where he says, We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. You see, even in the earliest days of the church, there's confusion. The cross itself is a stumbling block for many reasons within the Jewish culture, but also in the Gentile culture, it is a a foolishness. 
doesn't make sense that a king would die that way. And if he did, why would you worship him? Doesn't make sense. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this may be one of the most famous interpretations of the cross that we have in the scriptures, that what happened to Jesus was for something. Because this is not something the Gospels even tell us. They just retell the story and that's it. But this verse from Paul is an example of the kind of struggle to figure out the reasons behind the crucifixion that early Christians were engaged in. And here Paul says something that has given shape uh, to our faith ever since, even if it is still kind of confusing that Christ's death in some way, shape, or form accomplished something, it says, for our sake. What does that mean? Well, good luck. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to kind of try and tell you some ideas, but people have been struggling with this question since it happened. And everybody has different ideas. I mean, they funnel back into the same sort of idea. But the question of what does it mean is a complicated and mysterious and confounding question. I think the late biblical scholar Eugene Peterson gets at this a little, and this is in your bulletin, uh, when he is talking about the cross saying, when there is violence, there's got to be some kind of response. And is it more violence or less? Is it more of the same or is it less? And he's referring to God's response to a world that would end up in such a place where its people, almost without conscience, would crucify people. The reference here in this conversation with Peterson is just that, that the world would become a place where this kind of thing, crucifixion, would be done, almost with a clear conscience. And what is God's response to a world that has reached that place? And God's response was to allow it to happen, to himself. In a world that, would, that does such things to people, the response of Jesus was to stand or hang in its path to be overrun by it. It's fascinating. Crucifixion stood as a symbol, the symbol perhaps, of the brokenness that embodies every aspect of what we call sin. Unbridled power, Arrogance, the stripping away of someone's dignity, an affront to the very image of God that lives in every single person. And Jesus was wrapped in all of those things as he hung there on the cross. You might say that Jesus, in a way, absorbed all of that. God's response to sin was to absorb it. Perhaps what Paul is getting at here is this very thing. That when it comes to sin, and you may not like the word sin, but figure out what you would call it. It's just another name for it. It's the brokenness that we inflict within God's good creation and towards God's image-bearing people. Whatever we do to disrupt that is what the Bible calls sin. And when it comes to sin, Paul is saying, 
when it comes to all that is broken in the world and in our lives, this is the response of God. Not that God would uh, push against all of that with more of the same. doesn't do that. But that God would somehow carry the load. And this is the image I want you to see today, that he would carry that. And when I think about all the pressure we place on everyone around us to live flawless and righteous lives, and this is not just within the church, this is everywhere, I find hope in this image that God carries that for us. Amen? We live in such a time that perfection is almost preached. Again, not just in here. In fact, we rarely preach that. (laughs) This is a safe place if you're a loser. (laughs) Which is, which is why I work here. <laughs> but the myth of perfection is a very heavy weight to carry. You know? The way you raise your kids, the way you do your job, the way you take care of yourself. You know? I read a great kind of funny article about like, even self-care is another thing to do. It's another thing to fail at. And it's stressful. And there's no bottom to the myth of Perfection. But we can even go deeper into the fact that we all have flaws, too, that we all treat people as they should not be treated. We all think about things that we shouldn't think about. We all sometimes do things that we shouldn't do. I mean, these are real things. And what Paul is getting at here is offensive when he says that God doesn't respond in kind. He takes it. He takes it. On the third Sunday after the Epiphany, all the way back at the beginning of this year, the gospel reading for that day uh, gave us the words of Jesus in his home synagogue as he announced his mission to the world. And I want to read these verses to you. And I need to say time out. Garrett, I told you to come up during this part. I lied. It's not this part. I'll tell you when. <laughs> but Jesus reads these words to his home synagogue from the prophet Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Have you heard that before? I mean, if you were here that Sunday, you heard it. All the way back in January. There's something about, with Jesus, there's something about The bottom. When you and I watch Jesus in the Gospels, when we flip through the the scenes of his life, we see him working in the margins and at the bottom of society. We see him with people who have been cast aside and pushed away. That's what we see. And we notice quite clearly that he is moved with compassion towards those who are struggling. Even in our reading today on the cross, he tells the thief, the criminal, the actual criminal, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Even on the cross, even in that man's darkest hour, Jesus is still reaching into the forgotten places and lives of the world. Jesus is doing prison ministry in the cell of his own demise. It's fascinating. And Jesus performed his best work at the bottom, and he still does. He still does. I've been reading Matthew Perry's uh, memoir, and that's Chandler for the Nick at Night people. (laughs) And it's all about his struggles with addiction and almost dying. 
many times. And I wanted to read this passage for you that is very striking. And he writes these words. He said, I started to cry. I mean, I really started to cry. That shoulder-shaking kind of uncontrollable weeping. I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe, taken care of. Decades of struggling with God and wrestling with life and sadness, all being washed away like a river of pain gone into oblivion. I'd been in the presence of God, was held certain of it, and this time I had prayed for the right thing, which was help. Now, we don't have to be criminals or marginalized people or canceled people or outwardly destructive and sinful people to know that brokenness will always be a resident in our lives. Amen? If you don't know that, I'm sorry. It'll always be there in my body and my soul and that I'm not actually the maker of my own destiny. There are things that I just can't overcome and that I'm always, in fact, someone who needs the patient grace of God. And somehow, in the paradox of the cross, there is a power in the lowly state of Jesus, a kind of winning moment for all of us who need God and who isn't ashamed to be at the bottom with us. I will say this, that Christianity, try as you might, it doesn't make much sense in a world of filters and perfection. It just doesn't. It doesn't make almost any sense if you think you can, by your own self-will, just be righteous and perfect and flawless. It makes no sense. It's actually of no use. It only makes sense in the environment where grace is needed. Amen? That's where it comes alive. That's where we need it most. So today is the final day of the church year. Advent is next Sunday. And over the last 12 months, we've watched and learned about the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, his death, the resurrection, the presence of the resurrected Christ in the world and in his church. That's the story we've been in. That's the story we do every year. That's the story the calendar leads us through. And we'll do it all over again starting next week. But on this last Sunday of the year, always, it's so interesting, we are handed this sobering scene of the death of Christ. The church year always ends with a death. But it is here for us, for you and for me, as a reminder of what kind of God we're dealing with every single moment of our lives. The kind of God who doesn't respond to brokenness and hurt and pain with just more of the same. But a God who absorbs it, carries it, so that we might breathe, so that we can live. We're not dealing with a God who strikes back in kind. We are living in the very presence of grace.